0: Alright, well Sunday school can be dismissed. Follow the crew, all you youth. And the rest of us, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a chair within reach. You Might have to look around just a little bit and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew's in the New Testament. Towards the end of your Bible, after the book of Malachi and before Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Matthew 6. Verse 19, we're uh, back in our study, we've been doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Matthew, one verse at a time, and we'll be back in verses 19 through 21, we're introducing a new series, coming upon a new series, I should say, in verses 19 to 34, and we'll just dabble in it, verses 19 to 21 this evening, Matthew chapter 6. Well, a few years back, a news report came in in from London about a, a Middle Eastern individual who... A businessman, in five hours, spent $210,000 in a London bar. In in five hours, he, he, of course, went in there and the news report said that he went in with nine ladies and eight guys. Ordered a, started out the evening by ordering a $50, $50 bottle of white wine and then began ordering Dom Perignon Magnums at $1,400 bucks each and called for a Methuselah, a Methuselah, eight bottles and one of Cristal Champagne, one bottle of Methuselah being $60,000. And of course the festivities ended with a nightcap uh, consisting of a Methuselah of not Cristal Champagne, but Belvedere Vodka, which cost $3,000, and the nightclub spokesman said, quote, he just basically kept the drinks flowing. When the party left at 5 a.m. in the morning, the bill was 81,471 pounds, with tax and tip, that and came to 105,805 pounds, or $218,000. That included six coca-colas. Now that is clearly an illustration of an allocation of one's treasures, uh, being a bad investment, of course, an unwise allocation of one's resources and one 's treasures. But the question is is, are things of that extravagance the only way in which are Treasures can be seen for what they are, what our heart treasures, what our heart hopes in. As we, as we sing, uh, that on Christ is our solid rock. On Him we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The way in which we allocate or invest resources, the, way, the place in which our treasures are, this displays our hope. Wise and unwise investments our evidence and a barometer of that. It's easy to look at something like $60,000 of crystal Champagne and Methuselahs and say, well, that's an unwise investment. But according to the scriptures we'll study tonight, is that that will not be the only way in which we can, in which we will be able to uh, discern and see the way in which we might allocate resources and invest things, the way in which we will see our hope, our trust, our treasure. It's not only in extravagant evenings at nightclubs with champagne, but Christ is going to say it's in everything. In the place in which, one of two, we allocate our treasures. So in tonight's text, and then moving on, again, Christ is going to open this next section in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 16, 19-34, introducing this concept of treasure, which underneath it shows where our hope is. And then through the rest of the section in Matthew 16, 19-34, uh, we will see that we, can, we have a faithful Father in whom we can trust, which is going to have massive implications on things like our worry, our spending, and so on. So with that, follow along as I read. I'll start in verse 19. And just to get a big picture view of what's going on, it'll be similar to our reading that we opened with in Luke, uh, Luke 12 this evening. As you'll see, I'll read uh, verse 19 through 34. Follow along as I read Matthew 6. Jesus says, "...do not store up for yourselves." "...treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so that if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But..." If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason I say to you do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil or spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But... If God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will He not much more clothe you, you little faith? Do not worry then saying, what do we eat? What what do we drink? What, What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows, knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. As we set out in this section, having completed verse 1 through 18, really the the bedrock of what we will study in verses 19 through 34 is that statement in verse Thirty-two. At the end of verse thirty-two, look there one more time. We will not get to it in our study this evening, but but this is the this is the bedrock of the study. Your heavenly Father knows you need these things. That is critical to everything that Christ is going to say. That is the truth that is that that really upon which all the commands rest. Christ doesn't just give substanceless commands; they're always based on a on a powerful reality of truth, our Heavenly Father knows what His people need. So, in this brilliant teaching uh, built on that, this section in verse 19 to 34, it's really, Christ is going to be challenging us to evaluate our priorities based on the truth that a faithful Father, God our faithful Father, knows everything we need, loves us, and has demonstrated that foremost in providing our greatest need in the death of Christ on the cross. Christ will bring up issues in the section, timeless issues like worry and anxiousness and fear. Christ being the most worry free, anxious-free, fear-free individual who's ever lived most healthy individual, he will speak then as an authority on these, being God himself. It will take us a few weeks to get through. Verse 19 to 34. And we don't want to rush through here because every word is, is gold here. And so we'll just dabble into the subsection, verse 19 to 24, within the broader scheme. This section here is focusing on two different approaches to life. There are only two. Approach, an approach where I live as my own master hoping in in myself or an approach where God is my master hoping in God. It's very simple. Very simple. Two approaches. Whatever one we will choose, Christ says will have massive repercussions and implications on things like worry, anxiousness, and things like eternity. Hoping in myself, my own master and ruler, hoping in God, God is my master and ruler and my father. My Father. Again, do not, over, do not forget about verse 32 in all of this. Your Heavenly Father knows, an implication being He cares, which is intrinsic to the term Father. He cares. Lest we question that, we look to the cross. And remember Romans 8.32. He who did not spare His only Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will then He not freely give us all things we need? It's an argument of greater to lesser. Look, he says, He gave us Christ. He gave us the most valuable possession, the greatest thing we need. And so that has super significant implications on things like worrying about much, 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 much smaller things like cars and clothes and real estate and crops and barns and everything else. Don't worry. Why? Because he supplied your biggest need in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can enter into eternity with peace, knowing we'll stand acceptable before God. Do not worry. Do not worry. Hoping in our Father, Him as our Master, or hoping in, hoping in Self? Which one is it for you? Who's your Master? Well, nobody's my Master. Then you've just declared that you are your own Master. Boils down to one or two us or God. Us or God if we our, if we approach life with ourselves as our master and our hope, the inevitable inevitable consequence will be the anti fruit of the spirit it'll be the fruit of the flesh it'll be the opposite of peace, the opposite of trust, the opposite of security the opposite of of a, of, of tranquillity in the soul it backfires, but when we put our hope and trust in our Father, then we can Not worry and have things like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so on. Very simple, this teaching, very profound. So, verse 19 to 21, then let's get right into it. Big pictures for tonight. Verse 19 to 21, it's in your bulletin as usual. We'll put it up here. The big picture, the thesis, bird's eye view of verses 19 to 21 is this, very simple. The allocation of, of our own lives and our God-given resources, our lives being one of our resources, points to what we treasure and worship. The allocation of our lives. This verse is not just speaking about money, though it certainly includes that, it is much broader than that as we'll see. The allocation of ourselves points to what we treasure and worship. So our outline for this evening we'll see is this. Principles, six principles for rightly using the things God loans us. Six principles for rightly using the things God loans us. We'll see in verse 19 through 21, a packed section here. Six principles for rightly using the things God loans us. Number one is this. And this is sort of assumed in the text, it's not explicitly stated. Number one, all things are owned by God and on loan to us. All things are owned by God and on loan to us. This truth is both foundational, of course, and assumed in Christ's teaching. Christ. Uh, brings this into the matter, and the first century Judean audience would understand this for the most part. But lest we assume what some might not assume and know, we'll put a couple verses up here very quickly. Some very foundational truths of this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you make something and you're God, then that means you own it. Real simple. And of course, Psalm 24, by the way, that's the first verse in the Bible, if you're not familiar, Genesis 1-1. It starts out, let's, just, let's, let's get things straight out of the, out the uh, gate here. And then Psalm 24, of course, the implication of God creating everything is, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all who dwell in it. Whether the who there is a person, or a piece of dirt, or a mountain, or silver, or gold, or clothes, or crops, or whatever. It's God's. Another implication being, just to grasp this, would be somewhat of a moral implication of the first two verses. What do you have, then, that you did not receive? The rhetorical question answer being nothing. And if you did not receive it, if you did receive it, excuse me, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Very clear moral implication of Genesis 1 and Psalm 24. We don't boast, we give thanks. Why? Because everything is owned by God and He loans it to us. If that is not in our worldview, there's going to be serious problems. Unnecessary problems. But it all starts there. Our lives are less like owners and more like managers. More like stewards. We're not owners who own, we're... Stewards who oversee and manage something that is not ours. But the bank says it's mine. It's God's. It's God's. And if we didn't create the universe, if we haven't existed forever, if we are not God, then again, we're less like owners of things, more like stewards. All things are owned by God. Another evidence of this, you've probably heard the saying, you'll never see a U-Haul following a hearse. You'll never see a U-Haul following a hearse. In other words, if you can't take it with you perpetually in that sense, you're probably just more of a manager, right? Instead of an owner. All things are owned by God and loaned to us. Very simple. Number one. Number two, then. Everybody has treasure and treasures their treasure. Everybody has treasure and treasures their treasure. Everybody has treasure and treasures their treasure. Look at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. So right away, Christ says, look, I don't care how, how rich or poor you are or what tax bracket you're in. You have treasure. Again, this is going to be more than talking about money. You have treasure. You have something that you treasure. You treasure your treasure. Everybody does. Now, let's, let's uh, discover a little bit who the original audience was to whom Christ is speaking. Again, a first century Middle Eastern people around the Sea of Galilee. These were people who mostly lived in unimpressive, simple fishing villages. That is how they depended on their income. Fish. Sea of Galilee. And he is speaking to a people who had many reasons for which to worry. Many, many things like paychecks and if the next one would come, when it would come, if and when the next meal would come. He's speaking to people for whom things like big refrigerators and storage cupboards and and freezers, mostly filled, would be a very foreign concept. Things like retirements and 401ks would be uh, really unheard of for the most part. People for whom, he's speaking people to whom things like oppressive and unpredictable political leadership was common. Tax gouging was common. Unpredictable amount of taxes being taken was common. People to whom, for whom things like a savings account would be mostly foreign. So therefore, he is speaking to people prone to worry, like me and like you. So we cannot say, well, this doesn't really apply to me because... I don't. I don't own much. I, I own so little, and by virtue of owning so little and having so little money, uh, I'm sort of obeying Christ's command. And I can just leapfrog this verse. That's not true. Just because we don't have a lot of stuff for moth, moths to eat, and rust to destroy, and thieves to steal, does not mean we're exempt here. Christ is not only speaking, not even primarily speaking to people of significant wealth. Rather, he's speaking to people. So this teaching is not only for people of significant wealth. But people, all people treasure things. All people have desires. All people really like certain things. It's not a certain socioeconomic status of people who are prone to put too much devotion into stuff. Rather, it's people who are. Christ is speaking more about what, the, what, it, what, what is going on inside of us, our hearts, our desires, less about treasures, as it were. What our desires go after. But we put too much stock in. Many people can overly treasure things which they don't have. Matter of fact, that's often the case. All kinds of things we can treasure. Besides stuff and money, we can treasure things like time. We can treasure things like an experience. Things like a recreational experience. We can treasure things like comfort and ease and health and sleep and a reputation and status and all kinds of other things. Our hearts treasure these things. They become our treasures. And so the excessive attachment to those kind of things and more, anything other than God really, is a problem that spans income brackets. We all have a a tendency to treasure things other than God. What is it for you? What is your treasure? What do you... What does your heart treasure more than God? Is it comfort? Is it ease? Popularity? Looks? Gold? Applause from people? Your career, maybe? A certain relationship? One way to diagnose this is to to think back, perhaps, to the last time that maybe we became upset at some inconvenience in our life. We became frustrated, perhaps, say, when something of ours or something we really like was compromised. Maybe our sleep or our comfort or our property or our reputation our recreation. We got upset. How dare that be taken away? If we respond to the Certain taking away of inconveniences like that, or worry and anxiousness, it's possible, then that is what we are overly treasuring, even above God. That's the issue here. That's the issue here. We all treasure our treasures. Number two. Number three, then. Moving on. There are two places, then, number three, where we can invest with God's things. Two places where investments can ultimately, ultimately be made. Two ways, you could say, that we ultimately use the stuff that is on loan to us. Our time, our experiences, our family, our relationships, our money, our things, our skills, our giftedness. There are, there are two ways, and only two, in which we can use those. All times. So Christ, notice at the beginning of verse 19, "...do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth." Where moth and rust destroy, but where thieves break in and steal. And where thieves break in and steal. Verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, or thieves do not break in and steal. So, two realms of existence, ultimately and absolutely. Two places into which investments can be made heaven and earth. Two places where our hearts can be fixated. Two places in which our hope lies. Two places in which our trust rests. This is big picture priorities again, talking about hope. Priorities become a product of what our hope or what our trust is. Living for only here, earth, here and now, or living for heaven in the future. Now, he uses investment language, storing up. In the Greek, it's a, it's a term of investment, allocating resources with the hope that those resources will deliver. He uses this investment terminology because investment has to do with priorities and allocation and trust. What I'm ultimately living for and leaning on to deliver, to to, to give me something good in life. That's the purpose of investment. To give me a form of security. And there are two places absolutely where the treasure can be stored. Now, what he will not say, what Christ will not say here is, to live for heaven means you need to leave earth and check out. He won't say that. So we mustn't go too far, as many have in history, of saying, well, this means I need to become a hermit, a monk. That's really the godly lifestyle. I, just, I only have really a staff and a cloak and a glass of water, and that's what's so godly. He is not saying that. He, Christ didn't even live that way, for one thing. He'll not say to live for heaven and you need to become this This retreat, this sort of recluse where you can't have anything on earth. It's more, again, it's more of the heart, our priorities. It's less, it's not about having less, but what we do with what we have. Furthermore, this boils down to how we understand time. How we understand time. In other words, do we understand our lives as only birth physically and death physically? If we do, that is a very myopic view of time. A very dangerous view of time. Or do we understand it into eternity past? Into eternity future? Earth, our time here being very small compared to the amount of time we will spend in eternity. We must see time that way. We must see our lives that way. Christ operates under that truth. Of course, there is much more to life than a few decades here and now. That is only part of the story and a relatively small part. So, two places. For which one do you live? Number three. Number four, then. Earthly treasures and investments promise big, but fail since they're temporal. Earthly treasures and investments promise big, but fail because they're temporal. Because of their temporal nature. Again, and, and please hear this in the study. Christ is not saying that stuff is evil. That would, be, that would have serious implications because Christ made everything that can be called stuff, being the Creator. Earthly treasures and investments promise big but fail because they're temporal. And, and, and I love Christ teaching all through this as we, as we read to the end of verse 34, especially uh, in the climax we mentioned or the, 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 the bedrock in verse 32. He's very compassionate with his instructing. He's not saying, hey, all you, don't do this be- and do this because I said so. He gives very factual, helpful reasons to broaden our understanding, to correct our worldview. Things like a worldview of things like your Heavenly Father knows. And there are things like heaven and earth and then that really, on all those truths, rest his compassionate instruction. I want us to see that as we go through this study. In the coming weeks, in the 16 verses here, and there are about 12 very helpful reasons backing only three commands in, the, in this passage. This first command being one of storing up. So, do not store. Look at verse 19. Store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. So, this bad investment plan, first of all. The command there, do not store up. It's one word in the Greek. And it's translated, uh, it could be also translated to treasure, to hoard up. To heap up is the idea of of this phrase, storing up. It's the act of allocating resources that God has loaned me, time, money, skills, my life, Because of a belief that doing so will yield profitable returns. The act of allocating resources with a belief that in doing so in a certain way it will yield profitable returns whether, again, as interest or fun or appreciation in value or security or peace or whatever it is. So the idea here is beware of a heart that is fixed up with Earthly heaping. And it's not a one-time thing. It's a command that, in, in the Greek, that the, the verb is ongoing. It's a way of life. As a normal, regular pattern of life, do not be a heaper-upper on earth. Now, a couple things again, what Christ is not saying, just to make this very clear. Again, He's not saying that stuff is evil. He's not against owning things. This is about the heart's desire, the worship. The worship a heart that worries about stuff, a heart that doesn't hope in him. If Christ was against owning, he would say, do not own. He doesn't say that. Well, what about the time in Matthew nineteen twenty one, where Christ told the rich young ruler, he said, sell your possessions, give to the poor, then follow me. The reason he said that to this young man is why? Because this guy was worshiping that. That was his particular idol. And so Christ had to strip it from him to say, now you need to worship God, not gold. Christ challenges him to break this, make his break with his idolatry and worship God. Also, second, what Christ is not saying here, this is not a prohibition of things like saving and, and investing with your wealth, with your money. Places like Proverbs 6, 68, Proverbs 14, 23, Proverbs 28, 18 encourage wise saving. Savings. Go to the ant. Look how hard the ant works and learn from the ant how he saves up. When stuff like winter's coming, he saves up. Principle being, work hard and and allocate resources for wise use when they're necessary. Not against investing. However, caution is required, especially for a a fairly prosperous 21st century Western audience as a whole, which is what we are. If you're like me, many of us don't naturally and easily gravitate towards the idea of treasuring up things in heaven as opposed to earth. So, the idea of, of treasuring, it's just a neutral idea here. Christ is not forbidding investing itself, but a certain kind what kind? Look back at verse 19. The kind that is on earth. The kind where our hope, our security is in stuff. Earthly things. Things, again, that have a temporal nature. It's detrimental. Now, what is it, according to the text, about earthly investing in that sense as a, as a priority? That is something Christ warns us against. Earthbound treasure heaping. There's something about it. That act, that heart act, has a a certain characteristic about it, which Christ gives us at the end of verse 19 to help us move away from that idea. Notice what he says. Treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Moth, it's an interesting thing that Christ goes to here. He says this because in ancient times, wealth was often measured in clothing. Some of the best clothes in these days were wool, bright, shining wool clothing. It just so happens that moths love to eat wool. It's like their favorite food. So if one's hope and wealth in that time were in the, their collection of wool clothes, it could be easily jeopardized with something as tiny and simple as a little moth. A silly little moth threatened the well-being of those caught up in their wealth in that way. Now, not only moths, look what he says, where rust destroys. What's going on here? The Greek word for rust, it actually literally means an eating. A a gorging. A consuming in that sense. So it refers not really to rust, but more to the idea in the first century context of things like grain supplies and crops being chomped by rats and, and locusts and bugs, pests, and a day before we had things like pesticides and whatever else. Again, in, each, in ancient East culture, these crops and whatever, they were, they, they were a way to measure wealth. Grain storage. Like we read in Luke 12, the guy who keeps storing up his grain. But again, like wool and... Those kind of things, it could be easily eaten by moths, pests and bugs. Your crops could be decimated in a day. It could fly away. And, of course, if the bugs and the moss didn't swallow it, he concludes were thieves break in and steal. Another thing very common in the ancient East, especially in a culture where there was a lot of lack and a lot of oppression. Again, with just varying taxes and these kind of things, people, though it was their fault, they, there was a, the government didn't help, there was a, more of a tendency and a temptation to steal because of that. So, there's multiple ways in which the thing we hope in can fly away. There are multiple ways in which the thing we place our security on which our feet are founded could just grow wings and be gone. We could also add to this things like economies going bad, famines, no work, lawsuits, on and on and on and on. Point being, Christ says the temporal characteristics of earthly treasures makes hoping in them and the heaping of them foolish. And makes it foolish. They won't deliver. You keep wanting more and 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 more. I saw an interview with Ozzy Osbourne the other day. philosopher and theologian, Ozzy Osbourne. And he said, you know, I remember early in the days, you know, I made $100,000 and then I wanted that wasn't enough and so I wanted 500 and then I made a million and that wasn't enough and so I wanted more and more and more. There's there's a problem there. Against hoping and heaping. Christ is warning against hoarding up, heaping our hearts that hope in what we hoard and heap. Now, some of us again might be thinking, well, I'll figure out a way to beat those moths and the, the rust and the thieves. I'll get a I'll outsmart that first century audience. I'll have things like screen doors and mothballs and rust protector. I'll go to Home Depot. Security systems. I'll get a big Rottweiler and I'll beat it that way. But there are two big ideas here. First, the point Christ is making is not so much that we need to be on guard against moths and pests, but we need to think about what we are hoping in and what we are investing in. What will give the most payback? Payback. It's less about moths and rust, more about our hope. You can, fought, you can fight moths, but not time. The second big idea here, which is more implicit, again, is where is your heart? Where is your heart? Christ wants our heart. Am I living for heaven, or am I living for earth? Am I preparing for heaven, or just preparing for my next emotion that's empty, and I've got to quench it with some earthly trinket? There are subjects... These issues are earthly treasures. Again, moths and rust and thieves can take them away easy. So, Christ being, uh, being God, therefore, he is a brilliant economist. He knows it's going to happen not only in first century Palestine, but in every place on earth where in which we invest things. Again, Christ is not deterring us from investment, it's quite the opposite. He wants us to make better investments, He wants us to make the best investments. Do you see that here? He's a master economist. He says, I want you to make the best investment. In every economy, in every place, every human of all time. He knows something about earthbound treasure heaping in general. It is short-lived. It's unwise. If you speak to an investor, a Wall Street investor or whatever, they're often going to counsel you and say, okay, I recommend investing in, in... in this mutual fund or in this place, in this way. I recommend doing that because it's, you want to look at something that's going to give long term, that's going to have security, that will last far more with Jesus. Actually, far more with Christ. His counsel is to make a good, the best long term investment. Something in which you will see and experience dividends into heaven if you're going there. If you end up there. Earthly treasures and investments promise big, but fail because they're temporal. Number four. Number five. Heavenly treasures, on the other hand, and investments promise big. I should say and deliver because they're eternal. Heavenly treasures and investments promise big and deliver because they are eternal. Verse 20. Heavenly treasures and investments promise big and they deliver. Well, I take faith and might not quench our emotional instability that we're going to have tomorrow that uh, we usually um, satiate with some sort of recreational experience or some trinket or buying or someone's approval that I have to go in to kind of calm down that monster in me that's always craving for the next. We might going to have to walk by faith, in other words. But these heavenly investments... Promise and deliver their eternal. Look at verse 20. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither uh, moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. Now, what does this mean here? Because there is no bank of heaven that you can go to downtown and say, please deposit this amount of money into heaven, this mutual fund that's in heaven. Obviously, he's not talking about that. Now, to clarify, again, first what he is not saying. Please, please note this. By saying, store up treasures in heaven, he's not saying, here's how you get to heaven. He's not saying, this is the way that an individual gets forgiveness with God and gets into heaven. He is not saying that. It is assumed that the individual has already made peace with God Ask God's forgiveness, had their sin forgiven, and is already going to heaven, evidenced by the fact that back in places like Matthew 6, 9-11, and then in 6.32, the individual is able to address God as Father. As Father. Again, that's under all of this. As someone who does not believe in God or hasn't embraced Christ wholeheartedly for forgiveness of sins, they may not yet address God as Father. Savingly, that is. They don't know Him as Father. He's something else. So it's not talking about how to get to heaven, but the treasures in heaven. He's not saying, here's how to have assurance of getting to heaven. Give stuff away. You cannot go to heaven based on how we use our stuff and store up treasures, the way in which you use stuff and invest only evidences that we are either going there or not, but is not determinative of it. You cannot get to heaven by a certain way in which we use our time, in which we use our resources. So we must not mistake that here. Salvation is by faith alone. Heaven is not a thing we can earn. It's a gift we are given. It's a gift we are offered by faith in Christ and receive by faith in Christ. One's resources, some people have many resources, can provide a fun night out of town. $210,000, Methuselah bottles of crystal and whatever, and many, many, many more things. But there is one thing money cannot do, and treasures and purchases and resources and skill and anything else. It cannot buy your way to God. It cannot secure a seat in heaven. Money cannot do that. Nothing can do that but the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many people attempt to do this, but it cannot be done any more than monopoly money can effectively pay down your mortgage. You can, you can bring billions of dollars in monopoly money to your lender and not one dollar will be paid down by all of that. In the same way, not one dollar of our money or our works, our moral finesse, the good things we think, do, and say, they will never, ever pay for and effectively accomplish our entrance into heaven. It is impossible. Couple of verses to show that. First Peter one, so we are sure. Knowing you are not redeemed, purchased. Purchased from the punishment of forgiveness of sins with perishable things. Again, things that can only last earth's existence, like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and, and spotless, the blood of Christ. Ephesians two eight as well. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. Again, it doesn't say through money, through your good works you're saved. And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not not of works, so that no one may boast. Please don't mistake this here. When Christ calls you to be saved and offers you heaven, he doesn't follow up with, and I hope you have enough money to buy that. Instead, he says this, God, John 3.16, so loved the world that He gave. He's the one that does the work. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the way to heaven. It is a gift mercifully and compassionately offered to sinful humanity and received by faith, not money. Please do not mistake that here. So then, having been saved by faith in Christ, we can call God Father and then start making... What, what's, what's, what's amazing about this is though the stuff we have here, our resources have here, they are uh, short-lived, they can be invested in things that are not short-lived. Though they perish... They can be used to invest in things that never, never will. Things like souls who will be saved. Things like the gospel going forth. Things like the glory of God. Things like rewards that you will accumulate for yourself in heaven. Our stuff will perish, but the stuff that we use it for to send forward in heaven will not. It is so generous of God to orchestrate His economy that way. My time as well will perish, but I can use it in a way My stuff might burn down, but I can use it in a way that pays dividends eternally. That's a good investment strategy. Live for God in a way that makes heavenly investments, having already been saved by faith in Christ. Things, heaven, the reason Christ wants us to do this is because heaven is a place where things like moths and bugs and lawsuits and famines and Losing jobs, it can't touch those investments. It can't affect it. No matter how poor or rich, knowledgeable unknowledgeable, degrees, no degrees, where you live, where you don't live, you can invest in heaven and make infinite investments in the same way that anyone else can. It's a good investment strategy. An equal opportunity investment strategy that pays infinite and eternal dividends. So what does this mean? Keep going further here. Store up treasures in heaven. Another way to state this is it means allocating my resources. Again, whether God-given time, God-given finances, God-given stuff, God-given relationships, God-given skills, God-given giftedness that I may have. Allocating those in a way that falls under God's priorities. That's all it means. It's real simple. Allocate everything that is on loan to me in a way that falls under God's priorities. Anyone can get that and do that once we're saved by faith in Christ. And we all must. Now this begs a few questions that the text answers. One we've already answered. How do we know it's not only finances? Finances. Because spending money is the, not, not the only way to allocate resources in which, God, in which we can align our lives and our God's priorities. We've seen that. It's about our hearts. Finances is one way in which our heart's treasure is revealed. Time, Time is another and so on. Storing up treasure in heaven is more than how I spend my money, though it certainly includes that. Now, the other question that that begs is, well, what are God's priorities for which to which I should be allocating all my resources, my giftedness, time, finances, and so on? It would take us all night to list all of them. I'm going to give you ten quickly. It's ten sort of big picture uh, priorities of God to which we're to allocate our resources so that, we build up eternal dividends and, et- and heavenly investments. Things you will see one day by faith in Christ if you go to heaven. You will see the dividends from these things and the investment, whether in the, in the form of souls who are saved, rewards in heaven that we've talked about a while back, 2 Corinthians 5.10. You will see these. You cannot say that about other, all your other earthly investments, friend. Of ten quick priorities, very simply... To help us discern how to allocate our resources, one priority is to live a life pleasing to Christ. Very general, but very simple. 1 Corinthians 5.9, 1 Corinthians 10.31 To allocate resources in a way that pleases Christ. Second, to consider other people as more important than myself. That is God's priority that helps us direct how to allocate resources. Consider others as more important than myself. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. That's very tangible and helpful to help as a rudder to guide our resource allocation, isn't it? Third, if you have a family, providing for and spending time with them. The Bible says if uh, an individual doesn't provide for their family for 75a, they're worse than an unbeliever. They denied the faith. Fourth, God's priority is to work a job and work hard. Whether your job is a stay-at-home mom or a garbage man, a doctor, whatever it is. That's God's priorities. So, so again, you see here that storing up treasures in heaven doesn't mean I quit my job and I go be a hermit. No. It means i got to work a job. That's, that's a way in which I can store up treasure in heaven. Fifth, doing good to all, especially others in our church. Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Sixth, helping those around us in need. Galatians 1, 10. Seventh, plugging into and participating with a New Testament kind of local church. Hebrews ten, Hebrews thirteen, seventeen, and forty other one another. Uh, these are God's big picture priorities, which help, which help us discern all the various resources we have. If you're a dad leading your family in, in the things of God. That helps. That's very helpful in how in discerning how to allocate things like time. Money. Skills. Ninth, prioritizing relationships with people who love God and challenge me to live for Him. Prioritize, who, should, who should my friends be? People who prioritize. People who love God and challenge me to live for Him. I mean, that's just, that'll, that becomes very practical on how to allocate my resources, doesn't it? Well, I'll hang out with whoever I want. Then you are your own master, friend. And you do not know God. And then tenth, enjoy what God has given you with thankfulness. First Timothy 4, 4-5. Now, if you're like me, perhaps there's some things that are high on your priority list that might not be on God's. That might not be on God's. In that that case, since Christ is talking about priorities here, we might need to rethink certain priorities in our lives. Especially when it becomes apparent that we're reaping poor consequences from it, and you will. So with this, we can discern how to store where we are storing treasures, and then how to do so. Now, another way to discern that where we might be storing treasures, if we set aside any of these priorities of God to make other things a priority, if we set aside God's priorities to make other things a priority, regardless what culture or neighbors or whoever or family dictate, when we set aside God's priorities to make other things priorities, it's very clear to where we are allocating our treasures and making investments, isn't it? A loving Lord says, we might be doing this wrong. And I want you, he says, to, to invest wisely, because he loves us. And there is something amazing about all of this. First, God created everything. Second, God does the work for us to know Him as Father and to be saved. Third, God gives us all these resources to use for Him. And then fourth, in heaven, God gives us these rewards and these blessings to enjoy these investments and the dividends they reap for eternity. God will treat us in heaven through faith in Jesus Christ as if we did all the work to accomplish the investments. That's called grace. That's a good investment plan. And Christ commands us, friends, to be about it, to get into that investment plan. It's a really good deal. You, you will—you can talk to every broker on Wall Street, none of them will have a plan like that. None. It's pure justice, if that. R.C. Sproul says this, he says, the blessing Christ promised, the blessing of a great reward, is a reward of grace. The blessing is promised even though it is not earned. Our rewards, Augustine said, in heaven are a result of God crowning His own gifts. And you get to partake in that in heaven. And by the way, Hebrews eleven six 6 says two things. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because those who come to Him to know God, to know God savingly, to be saved by Him and go to heaven. There are two, two qualifications. They must believe that He is, assuming you believe in Christ. And number two, you must believe that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. You have to believe God is a rewarder. Okay. Make heavenly investments, friend. The great 17th century Puritan pastor Richard Baxter says, in pursuing one's way, that is to heaven, the lighter one travels... The better. Number six and last here. Finally, our treasures and investments indicate what we worship. Our treasures and investments indicate what we worship. Does that mean if I spend money on food, I worship food? No, of course not. It may be. But again, he wants our hearts here. Where is our hope? This indicates our worship. Again, it is not the owning of stuff that indicates our worship so much as the hope, the security, the love for what we own or maybe what we don't own. In verse 21, he closes, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a simple way to say what, whatever we are hoping in, prioritizing the allocation of our resources, time, finances, things, skills, That's your priority. Your priority is your priority, and it's your object of worship. What is it for you, friend? Where is your heart? Where is it? This is a very helpful barometer test for us. Where is your heart? What kind of earthly, perishable investments are you making? The heart of course is it's the seat of the will, what we love, what we crave, what takes over in our thoughts like without even trying. What we're inclined to go to and hope in and want. I want to just remind us that all the fake gods in the world, they are terrible gods. They are disappointing gods, the gods of gold, the gods of entertainment, the gods of a certain relationship status, the gods of comfort, the gods of career, the god of whatever makes me happy, the god of recreation, the god of self, the god of gold. They make terrible gods. They can't bring you to heaven. They can't give you peace in life. Some of you know this. You've tried it. You fall on your face over and over and over and over and over again. They make terrible sustainers in life's struggles. They cannot satisfy you in life's disappointments. They cannot save you from sin. They can't hold you up in trials. They cannot grant you right standing with the true God in heaven. And God loves us too much to enjoy idols and these kind of false gods. Hence these commands here and these statements. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven because that's the best place for your heart to be. That is the place where the fruit of the Spirit abounds, where peace abounds. Where actually, this, this command that I've read many times in my life, don't worry, I thought, okay, right. Well, you're God, I'm not, so I can't obey that. No, it's real. This isn't idealistic. When our heart is in heaven, peace results. We have a heavenly demeanor when our heart is in heaven. And where our heart is, where our treasure is, there our heart is. God wants us to store up treasures in heaven because He wants us to worship and love Him instead of the failure, substitute gods of stuff and experience and anything else that isn't God. And a final warning. On idolatry. Again, worshiping time, careers, people, reputation, fun, entertainment. Idolatry, a final warning from the Bible. We'll close here. A couple verses. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Beware, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Notice what, God wants us to inherit something through faith in Christ. But, if we are idolaters, do not be deceived, you will not enter, you will not inherit, you will not go to heaven. If you live as an unpatterned, broken, as an idolater, and then Ephesians 5, for this you know with certainty. Paul, in effect, is saying, look, please, know this with certainty. No immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, a worshiper of something else other than the God of the Bible, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. But the good news is that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever, even and especially idolaters, will not perish will not perish like their stuff that they worship and their experiences that they worship and their gold and silver and careers and time may be spent that they worship. They will not perish without stuff. But they will get eternal life by the grace of God. The death of Christ is the answer to those of us who are enslaved to earthly heaping up and hoping, up, hoping in these earthly heaps. Christ died to forgive that. And if you ask Him to forgive you, He will And you may know God as Father who freely gives us all things and knows what we need before we even ask. Let's pray. And so, Father, we thank You that You are so good and such a faithful provider. Lord, let our hearts trust You. And as we sing, that all other things, they are sinking sand. On Christ the solid rock we stand, Lord. Uh, Let us show the world as we go out from here Lord, these next six days till we gather again, let us go out from here to be salt and light and to make disciples, uh, powerfully showing, Lord, that Christ is our sufficiency and we have a Father in whom we can hope who owns and knows what we need. That we would not be idolaters, but joyful, peaceful worshipers of the true God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.